Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock in the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Today's guest is Nottinghamshire County Cricket Club's Director of Cricket, Mick Newell, who won the county championship for Nottinghamshire both as a player and twice as a coach, and later became an England cricket selector. Well, welcome to the Pavilion, Mick. Uh, thank you for agreeing to come on the show. It's a pleasure, Steve. Nice to see you after all these years. Yeah, well, I've known you for many years. And I go back to when you used to play for Notch Unity. But how did you first get in, involved into cricket? Was it your dad, your family, friends? Uh, yeah, I think it was my dad. My dad was a league cricketer up in uh, the northwest uh, when we used to live up there. We came down to Nottingham when I was about six. So when it was a, a coaching scheme, uh, well, it was a scheme for prospective new coaches where I met some of the players of uh, Notch Unity who were, who were trying to become coaches. Uh, and that's how I started joining their club, I think, when I was probably 11 or 12. Um, oh, so you first played for Notch Unity when you were about 11 or 12? Yeah. yeah, 12, 13, probably. I got run out on my first game. I can remember it very clearly. John Laurie, who was the lead coach, shouted at me to go for three, and I got run out going for three <laughs> instead of settling for two. So that was my first sort of experience of, of age group cricket and and, uh, and then into club cricket and then into so, county cricket from there. So did you play junior cricket sides for knots, like under 11s, under 12s? That sort um, of thing? So when I was under 14, uh, I got into the under 15 side. So I had two years in the under 15 team um, and then into the under 16s and 19s as it was back then. So there were those, those were the three age groups I played for. Right. Yeah. Because actually... actually a bit of a, a sad case for stats and that. I found um, in one of my old scrapbooks um, a game where you played against uh, March. This was at, um, at, at Notch Unity. And uh, several names that you'll remember playing in the game. And Notch Unity batted first and got 175. And you were caught Barry Rolfe, old Norman Alterton, for two. <laughs> your, your opening partner your opening partner was a person I know very well as well and spent some time in New Zealand in back in November. Brendan Boyce opened with you and got 26. Yeah. Brendan got played. Marchdown and Unity yeah, fame. That's correct, yeah. Uh, then when we went into bat, um, I was caught Boyce Bold Wood. I don't know who the wood was, but... Uh, uh, there was a Phil Wood who was a seamer, or there was a Dave Wood who was a left-arm spinner. I suspect it was probably Phil Wood, actually. And I noticed a couple of other names I remember. There was a Steve Lux that was playing. Yeah. yeah. And a Steve Collishaw played in the game. Yeah. Yeah, he was a fiery, fiery paceman. Every team had to have a fiery paceman with lots of hair and an open shirt with a hairy chest. 
Yeah. That was Steve Collishaw. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I used to enjoy the games with you because they were full day games, weren't they? They were, being, yeah. Being yeah. a bit of a blocker, the longer the game, the better for me. Anyway, we, I was then looking at your uh, your own career and your first game for the not second eleven was on the 1st of July 1981. You must have still been at school then. Yeah, I think it was at Trent Bridge. I think I played as a wicketkeeper against North Ants. Was it that game or not? Yeah, you don't, it was against North Hans. Yeah. And, um, you back Saar Frasnawaz was playing. He was, yes. Saar Frasnawaz was playing for North Hans second team. I mean, I, God knows why. <laughs> and I he was, got seven I, for 45. Did he? Probably got me out then. I think, I'm pretty sure I kept wicket because somebody got injured. I think maybe Chris Scott had gone into the first team or something. So I would have been 16 then. So that would have been the year I completed my GCSEs. And I think I played three or four games. Uh, that year and around sort of 81 to 83, I played quite a little bit of second team cricket as a whilst still at school. That that team though, the the Notts team that day, um, had a, quite a great, varied players because Bob White was playing in this game. Okay, yeah, yeah. he and, was probably the coach, I think. Ah, right, yeah. that's why he would have been playing. Yeah, and uh, Mike Belletta played as well. He was oh, yeah. a future yeah. Australian Test player. Yeah, and oh, Ian Pomp was playing as well. Right, gosh, yeah. So Ian Pomp was with us only for a couple of years, maybe 81, 82, I think, and then he went back down to Essex. But the, the Northampton team actually had three, well, had four test players actually playing. Well, only one at the time, but they had also had Rob Bailey, Neil Malander and David Capel all play that game. So. I, knew, I knew Rob Bailey because I played at the under-15, uh, what they now call the Bunbury Festival. I played in the under-15 festival with Rob because uh, he was from Staffordshire originally. Uh, so I knew Rob. I didn't remember. I, I, I would remember that he'd played in that if you'd have pushed me a bit. I wouldn't have thought about Malinder and Capel. He learned something every day, you see. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then I come on to your first game for Knotts, which was against Cam's University, again at Trent Bridge in June 1984. Mm-hmm. Now, on that occasion, can you remember who you opened the batting with? I think it was Basher. It I, was, yes. I know Basher played. Yeah. I remember Basher. I got 76 and naught, I think, did I? That's correct, 76 and naught. And and uh, a famous rugby international got 100 for Cambridge University, before you Ooh, asked me. Very, very good memory, yeah. The, the current chief executive of Sussex, Rob Andrew, got a, a century in the second innings. Yeah. Uh, Peter Roebuck also played that game. Did he? I didn't remember that. Okay. And you were playing alongside... Peter Such, uh, John O played, Andy Pick and Andy Afford all played in that yeah. game. Yeah, so that was, you say, 84. So that was in the season, I think, Knox came second in the championship that year. So uh, what time of year was that? That's June. June. So yeah. uh, the majority of the first team players would have been definitely resting for that game. So um, what was it like batting with, as a 19-year-old, opening the batting with Basher? Yeah, it's great fun. I mean, Basham, Basham must have been dropped or in bad nick or something. I can't think why he would have been playing in that game. But you always used to get a few senior players that would drop down. So, I mean, in 84, I was in the dressing room in and around the team a lot of the time, playing mainly in the second team. So, yeah, the opportunity to play. And it was at Trent Bridge, like you said. So, the opportunity, opportunity you don't get anymore because all those university games are always held away from the main ground, or generally, generally held away from the main ground. So it was a great thing to be able to play on Trent Bridge in a first-class match. And I looked up, uh, this to plug Basher again, it was Basher's last first-class century. So I have to remind him of that when I right. see it. Did he get 100 in the second innings, did he? In the second innings, yeah. He didn't get yeah. many in the first innings. But, uh, 
Okay. <laughs> but that, that that sort of soon after well, August 1984, the, you then played your first county championship match. Yeah. A three-day match, which was actually only a two-day game because you won yeah. both innings. Yeah. And that was at Lords. It was at Lords, and we bowled them out for not very many, and then we were about 30 for four. And uh, Richard Hadley tells the story that Clive Rice said to him, just go out there and make a double century. And Richard Hadley said, so I did. And he, and he did. He made 210, I think it was. Yeah, 210, uh, yeah. And then Kevin Sachs will be bowled out the opposition and we had a two-day win. I got three. I was out to Wayne Daniel. Again, used to shirt open to the chest, big medallion steaming in at me, way out of my comfort zone facing Wayne Daniel at Lords at the age of 19. Was that the first time you played at your odds or first time you no, played? No, I think I played for, I can't remember what they were called, maybe North of England schools under 19s or something against the army the previous year uh, in 83. My dad had gone down there to watch. He bought me a bat in the Lord's shop, I think, while the game was going on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, I played three games that year in 84 and Knox came second. And um, at the end of that year, the manager at the time, a chap called Ken Taylor, he called me into the office and he, he said, um, he said, you know that place you were offered at university last September? And I said, yes. He said, I think you should go. <laughs> so I managed to persuade him to keep me on. Uh, I got a £100 pay rise, and I'm still here now 35 years later. Oh, that's not too bad, is it? Um, and then we're moving on to your first first-class century, yeah. which is May 1986. Can you remember who that was against? Uh, Oxford University, yeah. And, and on that day, you also opened with another quite a different sort of character, uh, a bit like Basher, with Derek Randall. Derek Randall. Did he get 100 as well? You both got 100, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought that. So, again, that was one of those games where, you you know, you, you're you trying to get into a pretty good team. Uh, with, I think we had Broad and Robinson by then as well. Um, and, and, you know, your opportunities are thin on the ground. So I remember getting 100 in that game and that being a bit of a relief. Um, and then I broke into the side and played fair amount of cricket, I think, in the second half of that summer. Did you know Derek Randall scored his first century in first-class cricket when he scored 107 for Nottinghamshire against Worcestershire in September 1973? Yeah, you then sort of become, you start becoming a regular in the side in between 86 and 90. Yeah. And in 1987, yeah, was, yeah, you won the championship. Yeah, that's yeah. right. 87 won the championship and we won the, um, was it called the NatWest final? I'm not sure what it was called there on the... On a rain-affected game, we went back two days later and finished it off, and we, we came second in the Pro 40 League, so we nearly did a treble. And then Hadley and Rice obviously left at the end of that season, 87, which was a great way for them to finish with the club. Um, and we, we had a few t- changes and turnaround of personnel over those few years. And in 1987, you, you scored a 1,000 runs that season. And you played, you played in the, I know it's in the Nat West, you played in the quarter-final and the semi-final, but... You weren't in the final. Were you injured? No, Derek Randall had been injured, had broken his arm. And uh, that's why I I don't think Derek would have played in either of those games you mentioned. He said they didn't play in the semi. So I played in this quarter and the semi. And then there was a big, quite a big gap between the semi and the final. And there was a lot of talk about Derek desperately trying to get fit, playing his last game, last final, you know, uh, played in a second team game somewhere the week before just to prove he was fit. So I kind of knew what was coming my way. And we went down to Lords and uh, on the Friday, and I was told I wasn't playing. And Derek said, "Oh, you'll be all right. You'll be all right, young fella." He said, "You'll play lots of finals. This is my last one." <laughs> and of course, I never played in a final <laughs> after that. 
Um, were you 12th man? Or? I was 12th man, yeah. yeah. And we played on the Saturday and we didn't finish the game. And unbelievably strange when you look back, we came back to Nottingham on the Saturday night for a Sunday league game on the Sunday, <laughs> which then got rained off. And then we drove all the way back again to London on the Sunday night to finish the game on the Monday, which we managed to win. North Ants completely threw away a game they should have won. But we, yeah, we, took a, we spread out over three days that final. So just talking about your career, what was the best ever day's cricket you, you played in yourself and why? To play in, I mean, from a personal perspective, to make the, the runs, I got 200 at Derby that year. Michael Holding was playing. I mean, that was fantastic. I uh, got 100 at Manchester the f- two days later against Patrick Patterson, I think, was playing, which was a great thrill with these great West Indian fast bowlers that, that we don't get so much in county cricket. So from a personal perspective, those were two of the best days. Uh, I think to play in a team that won the championship that year, 87, we beat Glamorgan in the last match of the season. And then we had to wait for Essex to finish a game, uh, I, think, I think the following day or two days later. So that to actually win a championship as a player, I think, was a, was a great thrill because... It was a great thrill to play with Rice and Hadley. So to be part of a team that they were part of and win trophies with them uh, was a fantastic thing. So I would have said that that season brought about probably the best memories of my playing career. So that, that uh, the 203 not out against Derbyshire, when you were, uh, this was against Michael Holding and, and a young Devon Malcolm who were opening the bowling. Right. Did you prefer to face quick bowling rather than sort of medium pace and spin bowling yourself? Didn't mind. I, I mean, I mean, I remember that game. I don't think Broad, Broad and Robinson were playing a, in a test match. So myself and Paul Pollard opened the batting. And I've got a feeling Derbyshire might have won the toss and put us in. And I think it was a pretty green wicket. They went with a lot of pace. They didn't have much spin in those days. So, you know, you're just used to facing quicker bowling in those days. I, I, that's not a criticism of the modern game, but there were a lot more overseas players of high quality than there are now playing in four-day and three-day cricket. They're just not available now to play. So it was a different game. So you did get used to playing bowlers at genuine pace. And I've played against Michael Holding two or three times. You know, that's a great thrill to, to have had as well. So you, you're carrying on playing. So you're a regular for knots between 86 and 90. And you played uh, briefly in 91 and 92. And then then you sort of became the, well, you then the second 11 captain and yeah. coach. Yeah. Yeah. So we had, um, we had John Birch was the coach took over from Ken Taylor. It's fairly fairly obvious that I wasn't going to play much beyond 1990. I think I played quite a lot in 1990. After that, I barely played. So I, I'd got all my coaching badges. And then when John left the club, the second team coach at the time, Kevin Saxley, moved up and looked after the first team. So I was asked to look after the second team. Uh, and then Mike Hendrick came in to re- at the end of that season to become the new coach manager. And he, you know, he, he asked me to become the second team coach and Kevin left the club. So again, I was lucky there that, that uh, you know, an opportunity arose on the coaching staff that I think I was only 26, 27 then. Um, that, but but I, to be fair, you know, I'd got my badges. I'd got myself as well qualified as I could be. And I then spent uh, about 10 or 11 years in that role, looking after the second team and what we had as a Colts team on a Saturday afternoon in the local league as well. So you, your role was of captain and batting down the order more in the second team, yeah? Yeah, I, I was still, certainly in those first few years, I was still in a position to compete for the first team. So I might, I might have been generally around six, seven, eight batting. And then I think as years go by, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> I slid down the order to 9, 10, 11. Uh, I certainly, certainly should have done by the end of that, that career because I wasn't then competing for a place in the team. I think initially 
there was an element, like you said, of being a captain and, and a, compete, a competing player, whereas the longer that job went on, the more it became a coaching role and the captaincy was much less important. And then in 2002, you became the director of cricket, yeah? Okay. Uh, probably the head coach more than the director of cricket at that time because I don't think we ended up think director of cricket was a was a particularly a job at that point. So it was more a case of Clive Rice had been head coach with me as his second team coach and he left in June of 2002. So I think it was more of a straight in as head coach initially for a, a sort of a three to four month trial to see how it went. Um, and yeah, managed to managed to stay in that job for a long time really, as, as just as a coaching job. Yeah. So bring up the, the most important probably issue in cricket today with the the Black Lives Matter uh, question. Can I ask you as director of cricket, not what um, Nottinghamshire are doing to promote black cricketers in, in, in the county? Yeah, it's a very interesting one for us as a county. We are very much uh, a city. The city of Nottingham dominates the county and our city is very South Asian in its cricket. A lot of our age group players are... Uh, from families of South Asian background and less so from an Afro-Caribbean background. So, you know, we are always on the lookout for more players. There are some specific Afro-Caribbean clubs in, in Nottingham and we, we have a decent relationship with them. Um, and on our academy at the moment, we have more um, players of, of mixed race or Afro-Caribbean background than we've had for a long time. So it's about, for us, it's about getting into the, the South Asian community as well and making people realise that Cricket is a sport for them, and there is a career in cricket as well that can be had for people. So we don't have a specific um, policy or a, or a project at the, at the, on the moment, but I would say that our, our county age groups are very much dominated, very much dominated by South Asian players and, and players of Afro-Caribbean background. But, but we haven't cracked yet enough of them making a breakthrough onto the professional playing staff. So what, one of the things we do need and we have started to get is more coaches of of that background as well, because I think if players see coaches of their own uh, background, I think it's easier for them to relate to that that coach and that club. And that's something that I have been keen to promote. And we now have coaches uh, from both the South Asian and Afro Caribbean background that we didn't have three or four years ago. That's good. I mean, role models are always very important on it. I mean, we had you had Greg Mike was probably one of the last people to play. Yeah, yeah Greg Mike would have been the only uh, player I can think of. Uh, English player that I can think of, as I say, a number of South Asian players in Bilal Shafayet, Samit Patel, uh, Nadim Malik, uh, Samit's brother Akil, uh, less so, less so black players. But you know, as I say, we're showing some encouraging signs at the moment within our academy. Uh, but I also really do think the coaching is important. I, I think it's wrong to have a coaching staff and a coaching system that doesn't encourage people of all races to, to be part of it. And I think that makes it it look a more accessible system for players if they see coaches of their background who have got into a position where they can help to influence the game and the club. And is that something you, you think you can do in a quite short period of time? Yeah, yeah we've already done, done, done that to some extent. We've got two, three, in fact, co uh, coaches, you know, one South Asian, two Afro-Caribbean within our system. Uh, and I think we're also keen to encourage them to become as well qualified as they can. Because I think I think if you need those you need those visible role models like you said you need those people that people can see and relate to and they can say well if that if if uh, the guy's name is Brian actually so if Brian can get to a position where he can coach not under 11s then that's a position that's interesting to me and my family we can see that there this is a club that's accessible to all and I and I would hate to think that our club was inaccessible to anybody. 
No, it's always a very friendly club at, at Nottingham. Because when you were playing at uh, the height of your career, there was a lot of sort of black players playing in the county game, which we haven't got as much now. No, you know, I, I can, the best, some of the best players I've played against and privileged to play against were the West Indian fast bowlers of that era. You know, so I played against them all, if you, in, in, not, not very often, but Garner, Ambrose, Marshall, Patterson, you know, they all played George Ferris, they all played the county game, which you don't get that opportunity now, which is a real shame, but that's just the way it is. Um, so, yeah, that, that county cricket was a very multicultural sport, even back in the 80s. And, of course, at Knott's, we talked about Hadley and Rice earlier, and when they left, we had Franklin Stevenson come in for three years, I think it was, and he made a huge impact. Um, and I've remained, you know, in contact with Franklin to this day, and it's a, it's a great privilege to have played with Franklin, to have been his first roommate at Knott's, actually, on his first game, which was, a, which was a, an experience for me when he started doing stretching and yoga in the morning, which nobody had ever seen before in county cricket. So, yeah, it's, it was a very multicultural game, county cricket, even back then. But you, you think that the ECB are now going to take more action to uh, get more black cricketers involved? Look, I think I think diversity across the sport is hugely important. You know, I mean, I I live with the, the only female chief executive in cricket, so you know she's one in 18. So there are all sorts of areas of diversity that all sports, I'm sure, are becoming more aware of, and the need to change and the need to make a positive change. So I think that there are lots of changes that are coming to cricket, and and I think it will make cricket a better sport to have more diverse opinions and more diverse people involved. No, thank you for that. Going back to your coaching then, um, you made an immediate impact. You gained promotion from Division 2 in your first year. Um, you also won the county championship a couple of times in 05 and 2010. Yeah. And you've obviously seen the progression of England players, uh, Graham Swan, Chris Broad, Alex Hales, Samit Patel, Jake Ball and uh, Titch Taylor as well. So you've, you've had a very successful coaching career. Yeah, I mean, I was a better coach than I was a player. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And we had lots of ups and downs. You know, you mentioned 02, we got promoted. We got relegated in 03. We got promoted in 04. We were champions in five. We got relegated in six. We got promoted in seven. So we had an amazing sort of first few years. And we then settled into Division One for the best part of 10 years before we got relegated again. Um, and a lot of players that you mentioned there, you know, Nottingham is not a big county. But it's a county that expects to, to be in Division One because it's a test match ground and therefore it's perceived as a, a big club. Um, but it's not a big county in terms of cricketers. So the opportunity to bring some of those players that you mentioned to Nottingham, uh, side bottom, you didn't say, uh, was another one. You know, you bring people in and you hopefully they become better players and achieve more. Uh, that reflects very well on them, but also on the club uh, for giving them that opportunity to play. What attracted you in, in the first place to, to coaching? Because I knew I wasn't a great player and I knew I wasn't going to be in cricket for my whole life unless I got something else lined up. So I was, as I said earlier, I think I was fully qualified by the time I was 23. Uh, we didn't have winter jobs uh, or winter cricket jobs back then so much. So we had to go and find other work. So that gave us time. I went to work at Gunnar Moore in the factory at Gunnar Moore for a couple of winters. I went abroad for a couple of winters and you had time to get your coaching qualifications. Um, and I think, you know, nowadays players are on 12-month contracts and they're better paid. The only, the only drawback of that is they can get very narrow in their perspective on life and not think about what they're going to do after cricket or not perhaps pick up qualifications whilst they're playing. And what sort of type of coach are you? You're not the throw the teacups at walls and things like that. Um, I was, can, can be, you know, kick, there's a picture on my office wall of me kicking a bin. 
which did actually happen. I kicked the bin when somebody got run out in a pre-season friendly. Um, but you get tend to get stuck with the name, don't you? Or the, or the, the, the image sticks. I, I was a bit of a swear and a bit of a ranter and a raver uh, initially. And I think over time, I sort of mellowed a little bit. And, you know, working with somebody like Stephen Fleming, who was very calm in the way he spoke to players. I learned things from him about the way I spoke to players. And the longer it went on, the more you realise that shouting and ranting and raving, people just don't listen. They switch off. Whereas if you express your views in a calm, constructive and positive way, you're more, I think you're far more likely to get a positive reaction from players. And how has your role changed now that you're, you are now the director of cricket? Yeah, so over the last probably three or four years as coach, I was also director of cricket. So we had that sort of part administration, part management, part coaching. And I think it became fairly clear that it, that wasn't sustainable to do both at a perceived big club and a test match ground. So end of 2016, uh, we had Peter Moores already working with us as a consultant and he, he became head coach and I became very much off his base. So now I don't have a tracksuit at all. I don't go into the nets at all. Uh, I, I, my work is office based, so it's administration, it's management, it's part of the senior management of the club. Um, it's influencing the committee and, and managing the staff beneath me, really. So it's a completely different job without the involvement with the first team day to day that I used to have. But you often hear that. that. That's very good to hear, really, because so many sports have people in administration roles who've never played at the level and don't actually understand the game, whereas someone like yourself who's done everything in the game, you've, you've got a better idea than being in administration. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I was ready to come out of the coaching role. I was 50-51, and I'd done done the team. I think you mentioned 02, it started. So I'd done the, the team for the best part of 14 seasons, and there's no doubt that I was ready to do something else. And, it's, and uh, more important, the team was ready for a different voice and a different leadership. Mm. So it was the right time. If anything, it was a year too late. We should have done it a year earlier but circumstances didn't allow. But yeah, look, as long as I don't, I don't tread on any the toes of the coach and the captain, so I don't get involved in selection now, even though I could, I let them pick the team and run the team and then they're responsible for the performances. So it's, it's, it's helpful that I play to, for my job. I don't think it's essential. I mean, Andy Hurry down at Somerset does the same job as I do, never played first-class cricket. So I think it's about how you do the job and you, you, um, strengths that you have, you stick to them. And you don't delve into areas that you're not strong in. Talking about selection, of course, you're also an England selector between 2014 and 2018. Yeah. How did you become an England selector? <laughs> uh, well, after the Ashes tour of 13-14, the KP tour and the Swan tour, and they got hammered. Andy Flower left as coach, and Jeff Miller stepped down as chief selector. And uh, Jeff appointed, well, they appointed James Whitaker to be head selector. So there were two vacancies. I applied for one of those, for those, uh, sorry, there was one vacancy because Asti Jars was still in position. So there was one vacancy, Angus Fraser, who I very famously had a cup of tea with in your front room. Uh, Angus Fraser became the third selector and then Asti Jars didn't get the, the job when Flower resigned. Peter Moore's got it. So Ashley then didn't want to be a selector. So James asked me if I would take that role that Jars had stepped out on. So that's how I got it. I went for the interview, didn't get it. Angus got it. Um, and then a second vacancy came up, so they offered it to me then. So did you enjoy that role? Oh, best job in the world, that is. I mean, that is that is a great job. I mean, everybody sits around picking England teams, and there I was actually sitting there picking an England team, and somebody was paying me to do it, and 
you know, I get to work with Alistair Cook and Joe Root eventually, Owen Morgan, uh, Farbrace, uh, Trevor Bayliss, you know, Strauss when he came in, Paul Downton initially. So it was a fantastic job and it was a great thrill to go and watch England play abroad, which I'd never really done before, to go on England Lions tours to South Africa and to Abu Dhabi uh, and to the Caribbean uh, and to be involved in the selecting of players and teams, I thought was absolutely the best job ever. Yeah, loved it. We we regained the ashes, I think, when you were uh, yeah. selected. Yeah. 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 So we had, you know, I mean, England a bit like a bit like still they are now. They're very very good at home for the most part, and we're not so great away from home. So we had, you know, great wins over India at home. We beat Australia at home. You know, we beat uh, most teams at home. Pakistan, we, you know, New Zealand. We beat teams when they come here. Um, and then, you know, one famous win we had abroad was in, in South Africa when James Taylor was playing, as you mentioned earlier. James Taylor took some great catches at Short Lake. So that was a tour that we helped to pick. But, you know, that was on the back of going to the UAE and getting hammered 3-0 by Pakistan. And the following year going to India and losing 4-0. And the following year going to Australia and losing, I think, 4-0. So, you know, similar to where we are now, we're very good at home. Recent results withstanding. But we're not great when we leave this country. No. Let's find out Mick's favourites. Right, well, thank you for that. Now, just uh, finally, just a, a few favourites questions here. The, the mm-hmm. first one, which you probably already answered, was what was your favourite innings? Uh, I, no, my favourite innings, I got 100 in a 40-over game at uh, Colchester, I think it was. That must have been play. surprising in a 40-over well, game. Well, yeah, absolutely amazing. That's why it's my favourite. So this is going back in the... I kept wicket. And oh, it might have been at South End, actually. I can't remember. Anyway, anyway, they, Essex got about 240 in a 40-over game, which was unheard of. That's a lot of runs. Mm. And Mark Wall was playing, I think. And as I was putting my pads on, Chris Broad said, surely you're not opening the batting here with me, as in him. And I said, no, no, I'm in first with you. He said, but we want six and over. You can't be opening the batting. So anyway, I put my pads on with that vote of confidence from the other end. And I was 109 not out, and we won. And I think Franklin was in with me at the end. So that was my only one-day century. And it was, I think it's particularly because the bloke comes out in the batting with was sledging me before we went out of the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> what about your favourite batsman? I have read somewhere where you've mentioned somebody. but uh... Well, my first favourite batsman was Sonny Gavaska. Oh, that's who I read. He batted in a floppy hat and, and a skull cap. And I thought he was a beautiful stroke maker. So I think he would be... He was my sort of ambition or role model as an opening batsman who was to be like Sonny Gavaska so I probably still got would have had a big floppy hat would have had the Duncan Fernley bat that he used definitely um, and that he was the first person I thought oh, what a beautiful player he is and uh, your favourite bowler well several I mean Richard Hadley to play with uh, Andre Adams to coach uh, he was a fantastic bowler in county cricket we had McGill we've had Swan we've had some great players at Knotts um to bat against Terry Alderman, I didn't mention earlier, but, you know, Terry Alderman, Derek Underwood, to bat against him, you know, it's played against some of the great bowlers of the game. And, and to, but I think to have had in our team, to have had Andre Adams in our team for a number of years, he was the closest thing to Richard Hadley I'd seen in county cricket. He, he was an absolute gun in county cricket and we got the best out of him. And what about the fastest ball or the fastest bowler you ever faced? Um, probably either... Either Patterson or Malcolm, we mentioned them both earlier. Patrick Patterson could hurl them down at great pace. Uh, I remember playing against him at Trent Bridge as well as at, at, um, at Old Trafford. And Devon, you know, Devon could get them through as well. So probably one of those two, really. Or Sylvester Clark, he was a nasty one as well. 
So that yeah, you know, it was great to it was great to have faced them all. But those sorts of bowlers, there was there seemed to be, as we said earlier, a bit more pace around in those days. And Sylvester Clark always used to look frightening just watching him on the television. So what it must have been like watching well, him the bowl. We, I played against him, you'll remember, they used to have helmets with little side pieces and no face mask. <laughs> what are we doing? And I, I think we played Surrey on not a very good pitch. And I remember coming off at an interval, I think, and changing from side pieces to a full face mask and then never looking back again. But <laughs> the time, the, the runs I got against, um, the 200 I got, I think, was just in little side pieces, which seems crazy now when you look back on it. It does, yeah. What about the favourite captain that um, you sort of played under or played with? I only really, well, I played under two, which was Clive and Tim Robinson. And, and you know, very different. Clive, you'd have to say Clive was, would be your, your much more your role model captain. I mean, I've, ca- I've had worked with a lot. So we've had Jason Gallion, we had David Hussey, Stephen Fleming, Chris Reed. I had a good, very close relationship with Chris Reed over seven or eight years, which was based on, you know, I think mutual respect and a lot of trust and an enjoyable relationship. And, and both of us, both myself and Chris, would say we learned an awful lot from one year, uh, three years of Stephen Fleming. So some kind of, you know, all sorts of different captains. I think it was great to work with Fleming because he just, he didn't want to do anything off the field. He was very happy to leave things to me and just let, take the team on the pitch. Um, and then Reedy, in a quite a similar way, really, let me get on with organising the team, signing the players. So, so those two really would have been people I had long-standing respect for and worked really well with. And your favourite ground? Well, I used to, obviously Trent Bridge is up there. It's no too easy to say Trent Bridge. I mean, I think Lords is fascinating. I didn't enjoy playing at Lords. I thought it was too stuffy. It was all blazers and ties and why are you going there and you can't come in here. And, well, I'm playing. Okay, yeah, okay, you can come in here then. Um, <laughs> but as a coach, it was great thrill to take a team to Lords, just to play Middlesex and to win or or to play with Middlesex was great. To take a team there to win the final 2013 was fantastic. So as, as a coach, I thought going leading leading a team that was playing at Lords, I thought was a fantastic thrill actually. So what a you know Lords was a great ground. I, there's others in this country that I'm very happy. I like Taunton. I like Worcester. Um, you know, I, I'm not so keen on the, the stadiums as we have them now, the big grounds. So I, if I was picking a non-Test match ground, I'd probably say probably say Somerset was my favourite ground. And your final favourite question, uh, what's your favourite other sport? Uh, oh, it's got to be football. Uh, I'm a Liverpool man. And, like, you know, to, to, I've been very lucky over the past two years, a friend of mine... Uh, from uh, from Mumbai has got season tickets and he only comes over a couple of times a year so I, ha- I have been the keeper of the tickets so over the last two years when they've played some unbelievable football I've been probably eight times um, and that's great I took my to take my dad who used to stand on the cop uh, to a game on Boxing Day last year which was brilliant uh, and I don't think he'll ever go again so to take him back to Anfield uh, just to see the, the football that Liverpool have played and the relationship that the city and the team has with the manager uh, has been a really interesting exercise as well as fantastic to watch Liverpool win the league for the first time in 30 years. So you're impressed by Jurgen Klopp then? I, yeah, I think he just fits the team. You know, he just fits the city because it's such a football city. It's not a cricket city at all, really. Manchester does cricket and football. Liverpool just really does football. Um, and his passion for the game and the team is just unbelievable. And, you know, he really connects with that team. And I remember going to the first game of, not this season, the one before, when they beat West Ham 4-0. And 
and there was just a little buzz, not a little buzz, it was a big buzz around Anfield and around the place that day. And you, I just sensed then that something special was happening, just the way that they were engaging with the team. And obviously they didn't win the league that year. They lost it to City by a point or whatever it was. Um, but there's no doubt that he has, his passion, his enthusiasm has driven that club forward in a way that very few sports managers can do. It's a bit like when Bill Shackley was there, really, with the, the passion he's got for the club, isn't he? Yeah, and like Ferguson at United and other clubs will say they've got the similar club here in in, um, in Nottingham and and whatever. So, but he just you know he just gets it and they they love him and I think it's a heck of a job to follow him. I know that much. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for answering those questions. So, so what does the future hold for for McNeil? Well, a few more years of this. I think you know we we've got a lot to do still at Trent Bridge. We've got a, the new tournament, the hundred, uh, which I think we'll be back next year. So working with the Trent Rockets to try and make that a successful team in that tournament, trying to get knocks back into Division 1, which obviously won't happen this year now, um, and just trying to keep us at the forefront of the county game. You know, we have a we have a pretty good record over the past few years of not so good last year in four-day cricket, but of playing good cricket, producing good players. Uh, if I can carry on doing that for a few more years, I'll be quite happy. Well, thank you very much. Best of luck anyway. Thank you very much for being with me in the pavilion, and the best of luck to you and to Nottinghamshire. Good to see you, Steve. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pad. Sports Social Podcast Network.